to Straight From The Source, the podcast from the Association of Participating Service Users. We represent people impacted by alcohol and other drugs. I'm your host, Sam Schlicht, bringing you real-life stories straight from the source. Before we get into this episode, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognize their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. I pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. So we're continuing our mini-series gauging the effects of COVID-19 on AOD services and the people who use them. This week I spoke with the mother of a young man dealing with ice addiction and other related issues. We ended up having a wide-ranging discussion about her family history and the particular challenges faced in this moment. Please note that this episode does contain reference to substance use and mental health issues that some listeners may find distressing. If you could just start by talking a bit about your family and just the reasons that you first had to begin to use alcohol and other drug services? Basically, with my youngest son, um, he probably started using marijuana at the age of 14. He had low self-esteem. But really, I think, I don't know, I've only got boys, so I've got two children, um, a 24-year-old and a 27-year-old. For my son, he... I think, you know, they they hide it very well. So I really didn't realise that he had any real issues. He had lots of friends, you know, very social. Um, But, yeah, so he sort of started using marijuana probably from the age of 14. We sort of um, got a phone call from the footy club to come and pick Ryan up because uh, they noticed that him and another boy had been uh, taking marijuana. So that's when it all sort of started. But... I'm quite close with my boys and so we try to, you know, talk about things and if he needed me or us for anything, you know, wanted to have a talk, you know, the doors were always open. We never shut it down or anything like that. And so then he sort of started saying that he started smoking cigarettes and he used to get a bit of pocket money. Um, At that stage, he sort of wasn't stealing or anything like that. But then I think it progressed to... You know, we're going on a holiday and uh, to America. We're taking the boys. Uh, my oldest son had just finished high school and uh, his VCE and I was turning 40 the same year. So my oldest son was 18 and I was 40 that same year. So we decided to do a big trip to America. And I know I'd had some money put away that I'd been saving and I went to go through it and it about $1,000 missing. So that's when we sort of realised, and we, we knew it was my youngest son, and that's sort of when we realised that things were pretty getting hectic. And that, he was about 16 at this stage. So he really didn't, um, I don't think he stole from anyone else, but he was quite comfortable stealing from his family, you know. And then, yeah, so we then engaged um, with, back then, we were through Bouverie. Um, Bouverie was down in Coburg and they were, 
that was an amazing concept how they did things because you'd be speaking with a counsellor on one side, but then there'd be a mirror and there'd be about six psychologists on the other side and they'd be watching us with our son. Uh, so my husband and I would would go in with our son and we'd have a chat with a counsellor and a psychologist and talk about, you know, my son's actions and and it was quite interesting how they did it. But we were going there for about nine months, but it also came to a crushing halt when they pretty much told my son that he's a teenager and he's doing exactly what teenagers do. So that gave him like a ticket of freedom because he thought, well, I'm, I can do what I want. So things sort of slowly, slowly escalated, but, you know, he was only 16. So I'm still accountable for, for my boys. And uh, so I tried and tried. We ended up at Berry Street and we did the Tara Group, which is a teenage aggression um, responding assertively. So that was quite interesting. I did that on my own. But my son wasn't aggressive. He is very docile, really. Even now, he's doesn't show really any aggression. He's never punched holes in walls or anything like that. So he's been, yeah, he's pretty good. Um, he's, he's gorgeous, actually. He's just, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so then we also went through the Reach Foundation, um, which was a Jimmy Stein's um, footballer. Um, he sort of started that foundation up and they were actually really good and re- told me that my son wasn't a follower but yet a leader, which I realised then because I always thought he was a follower, but they worked it out straight away So because um, they deal with these these um, sort of children. So but at this stage, my son was um, just as far as I knew, just doing marijuana. Then we sort of skip a few years and um, he'd been working like part-time with my husband. He was at school. They caught a private bus to school. They went to a boys' Catholic school and um, my older son was saying that my younger son wasn't hopping on the bus. So we eventually started taking him, but you can't, there's nothing you can do. We just have to drop him off and watch him take off. And that sort of happened for, oh, over 12 months. And then they decided to put my son into a um, VCAL and they they offered him absolutely anything and everything to keep him at school because that was their main priority. They were absolutely fantastic with him. But it wasn't enough, you know, and he'd get caught smoking and then he'd get suspended. And so, yeah, eventually uh, we went to the principal and said, look, we're wasting your time and our money and we ended up putting him in a TAFE and he did like a ticket to trade and and he was sort of quite settled um you know he he wanted to be treated he wanted to be an adult so we treated him like an adult because that's I think what they want they push the boundaries I don't like the word no so he did that for a little while and then never really was into going into work or anything um I think when he became old enough he applied to to get the the doll and then we sort of skip a few years down the track and he so he would probably would be about 18 by now and he was just sort of sitting on the couch doing nothing and being a little like real smart ass you know typical that age group you know yeah and um 
we'd had enough. And so he, um, we'd had a door that was locked that because he would eat us out of house and home. So there was a door locked and we'd come home and it had all food and everything in it and he'd got into it, broken into it and taken everything out of it. And we sort of come home and my husband and my youngest son had a bit of a, a scuffle and it was outside and my husband was sort of saying to him, what's wrong? You tell me what's going on. And he pushed and shoved anyway. My husband ended up getting um, six stitches in his head because he'd been cut by a door. So one one was on one side of the door um, and the other one was on the other side of the door and push and pull and sure enough, it came off its hinges and whacked my husband in the head. And so my son took off and never came back pretty much for, so he was sort of out of home for about six months then. And... I think that was probably where he had his first taste of ice. He went. He, he did tell me that he went to a friend's house. They were going to go and smoke marijuana. So he'd smoke marijuana pretty much, I think, up until about 18, from what he's told me. And he's pretty honest, sometimes brutally honest, tells you things that you don't want to hear, but you just, as a parent, you just have to sit there and listen. And he had went to a friend's house and you know a mutual friend that we we knew this boy and um they thought he thought he was just going to go around and smoke marijuana and then someone introduced him to ice and that was his first taste of ice and I did see a little bit of a change in him then we went on my husband and I went on a holiday and my son was ringing up while we were away and begging to come home and He'd done a bit of damage here mentally with with my youngest son because he was st- studying. And in the meantime, my I think the big significance for my son to turn was my mum and my brother died a week apart. So that was, and, you know, both my boys were very, very close with both my parents, but particularly my mum. My mum and dad were sort of co-parenting my boys from a young age because my husband walked out when they were one and four. So, you know, for me to keep a roof over a head, I had to work two jobs and um, that might have been maybe part of my son's, you know, the way he is, his mannerism. I'm not I'm not really 100% sure. I have been told that he has, has abandonment issues because, um, you know, he doesn't really remember his father, doesn't remember living with his father. He has contact with his father but doesn't really have much memory um, and he's married and got, you know, another family now so they don't really see a lot of their dad. So we came back from holiday and got in touch with the Selvos and they ended up finding housing for him. That ended up being, um, I don't know, a bit of a catastrophe I suppose because he ended up with living with two older gentlemen and they were doing ice and marijuana and I'd go over and take food over and he would offer them food and they'd give him drugs so that sort of ended not really great and then he had a friend who suddenly passed away and I think that was sort of the change of of my son that really he really hit rock bottom and he rang one day on the phone and I don't know how many times he he kept on it was reverse charges and I, I don't can't even tell you how Many times he rang and the, my bill was sky high. And my husband said, go and get him. 
because you know we've got to be we've got to all conform it's not just me even though I'm mum we've all got to you know come together as a family because we've all got to agree for my son to come home so I um he rang again and I said look I'm coming to get you but these are the rules when you come home da 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 so he came home I swear to you within a uh, couple of days he had a job and um life was good and he was doing really really well but I suppose I didn't realize the mental issues that that he had right yeah so how long ago was this um this was um about four years ago okay yeah but so you've you felt like he was doing okay for a while then when he first came back yeah amazing got got a job um was saving half his wage and he was only like on apprentice wage and he was friends of ours had given him a chance because they believed everyone deserved a chance and it was just amazing um and he was doing really really well but ringing me every day and you know you just sort of have to talk through you know the pro like it'd be like a process you know because he you know if he fitted in and you know it's it's highlighted more so now because of the drugs but he's got severe OCD which we really didn't pick up until he ended up at Melbourne Clinic a few years ago so basically he was really really good we went on a holiday and um, we got a phone call it was the day we're due to come home and um, my oldest son had said mum you know, I need to talk to you. He was FaceTiming me and he said, I've got to show you something. And he turned the phone around and the house had been ransacked. And that was, yeah, like a bit of a wake-up call. And we pretty much knew it was our youngest son, but we, we couldn't say definitely. But my oldest son was really fearful because he'd seen my youngest son behaving oddly and not quite right and he he would have no idea what uh he's pretty straight my oldest son he's on a spectrum so he um he has Asperger's high functioning but yeah quite fearful so we we came home and found the house in a pretty bad way and pretty much walked in the door and my son was here my younger son and I'd never seen him like it ever and we asked him what had happened with the the tvs and stuff and he just looked and said what are you talking about and my husband then said the f and tv that was on the wall and my my husband's a very docile man but he's you know come home, you can't even have a holiday and your house has been ransacked pretty much. And he obviously he'd had help because we've got, you know, a couple of big TVs. But anyway, he'd taken off by this stage and the police came. I get a phone call. I got a message actually probably about an hour or two later begging from my son, I need help. I'm so sorry. I can't comprehend what I've done. I think it all sort of hit him. And I've realised now that he was actually coming down on ice. That was the first time we realised that my son was doing ice. But that was two years ago. But it all sort of, you know, you can put the puzzle together now because things have been missing and stuff. And, you know, I've known my son's been a stealer, but, 
that he was doing bigger stuff, you know, he stole all my mum's jewellery, you know, which that really, that probably hit me to the core more than anything because I can replace TVs and clothes and some of my jewellery that, he, that he'd taken, but my mum's stuff was sacred because that's all I had left to my mum and I'm the only girl, so I got everything. Um, and I haven't even got the heart to tell my dad that his grandson has taken it. So when he was sort of crying out for help, I thought, well, I've got to help him because that's what mums do and he's crying out for help. So I think once they start saying they need help, well, then you've got to, you've got to be there. So that's when we started the ball rolling and we'd heard about Melbourne Clinic at the time. So, yeah, we got him in and he was amazing. He just did so well. He thrived. And just for people that don't know the place, what, what type of service is that? So, well, Melbourne Clinic is is well, unknown to us at the time, but it actually is a clinic for drug and alcohol, for PTSD, for anorexia. So for a lot of um, mental health issues, there's, that's a facility purely for that. So really um, quite a bit more laid back than some of the other clinics that we have actually been to or one other clinic that my son has been to. Depending on your psychiatrist, you can get leave. So that was sort of a bit of freedom, but they've got to be in the right mindset too. So they would never allow the the patient to go out if they didn't feel that they weren't strong enough. And it doesn't happen straight away. They've got to be, you know. Um, so he started off in detox for a couple of weeks, and the only thing is with Melbourne Clinic, you can't have any court hearings coming up. So. We actually had charged my son, but we had to drop the charges. Even the police were a bit dumbfounded that we'd done that. But at the same time, I was doing that to help him because to to get him mentally healthy again was far more important than putting a charge on him and putting him in jail because that would have done more damage, I felt. So um, we dropped the charges and he got in. And the the condition was he had to come back home and live with us. So we, we all agreed that he'd come back home uh, and live with us after afterwards. So he went in, so he did two, two weeks of detox. He came home for a week because you have to do a minimum amount. I think it's 28 days of detox. You've got to be sober for 28 days before you can go into rehab. Not all of them are like that, but I think some of them. You've got to be sober, I think, to go into rehab for, for a little while. I, I think it depending on uh, – I'm no expert, so depending on, on where you would go, I'm presuming – so he, he then went into rehab and, as I said, he, he thrived and became one of the leaders and, um, yeah, got a lot out of it. Um, they do art therapy and they don't go to any, like, NA meetings or AA meetings. They have a lot of people coming in, speakers that come in. So he came out and, you know, we just wanted him to, you know, mentally heal so there was no rush about him getting a job or we were quite happy for him to come home and just rest and you know take care of himself and know that he's loved and he feels secure again because you know being outside you know homeless because it's sort of like the second time he'd been out of home you know and it's not a nice you know not a nice place to be so and obviously we don't want that for him but at the same time, when they steal, you can't have them in your house either. So, yeah, things were really, really good. He was 
you know, still seeing the psychiatrist and then he'd do day hab. So they, they go every week and he was keeping up with all that and doing really, really well. And then, so when he came out, he was actually um, probably sober for about 18 months. And then we've gone away again. And the morning that we were going and we're taking my father with me, on a life, trip of a lifetime. My, my dad's never been outside of Australia. My mum never had any inkling of leaving Australia. She loved her feet on the ground, but my dad always wanted to go to the Rockies. An opportunity came and we all went. And the morning that we were going, we were getting up about 4.30 and my oldest son came down and said, mum, my youngest son's gone. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, he's not in his room. And then I thought, oh, my gosh. So my husband and I stood there and said, will we go or will we stay? So I think if it had just been us going, we probably would have stayed. But then you think you can't let them control your life either. So we decided, and because we had my dad and he was staying here at the time that night before we were going, so we decided we'll go. And I feel guilty because I've left my oldest son to deal with it which is, yeah, a guilt that I have because it's not very fair. So off we go and then my youngest son came back and was behaving, you know, not not great, but my older son's studying, so he's sort of not really taking a lot of notice. But then he noticed that he'd been sleeping in our bed. I don't know why, and there was cigarettes butts everywhere and he was sort of getting untidy again and this is a ha- a, a form of habit that he he creates because with his OCD yeah normally with his OCD he's really super duper organized and super duper clean and when you know my son is out of control things start getting messy and that's what was happening when we we're away so my older son decided, well, I'm not putting up with this. So he changed the locks and, and made it quite clear to my younger son, I'm changing the locks. And he decided, well, I'm not going to, I don't like that idea. So he broke in. And at the time we'd had an international student staying with us and he happened to ring up my older son to say that uh, my younger son would have he had broken into the house and was trying to get into my older son's room, which was locked. And uh, he said, get off the phone and I'll, and because my older son was actually, funny enough, at the courts getting an intervention order on the younger son. So while they were there, they, they had told the police this is what was happening. So they ended up finding my younger son with stuff that he'd stolen from here and they did not hesitate they took him there and then and he ended up in jail. So um, he was in the remand centre, I think, for a week and then ended up at Ravenhall. And so basically the, our holiday, my son was in jail. So in a, in a way, because we, we were deciding whether to come home, but I think for us we sort of decided to stay on our holiday because he wasn't, he had a roof over his head. He was, I felt he was safe and my other son felt safe that, you know, nothing more was going to happen. So the duration of our holiday, he was in jail. And then um, we come home and the police came. 
because he needed to pick up some clothes and he came into the house. I asked if he could come in and I said, yeah, that's fine. And he looked amazing because he'd been sober for, you know, five weeks and he looked gorgeous, you know, skin beautiful and, yeah, doing really well. They got him into crisis housing and that was probably one of the worst things that could have happened because crisis housing majority of the people that come that go there are coming out of jail themselves and reoffend and so he went on the bandwagon again with ice and just sort of yes yeah, it's just sort of escalated from there and um he hasn't been home so that was September up until now so and now we get to the COVID situation and um can I just interject the thing I want to ask you about as well is obviously your son, you know, it is, he's got a very complex situation and he's been in and out of services, but um, you're having an experience as well. And so I'm wondering what kind of support you've received. Yeah, it's been hard. Because um, I lost my best friend in my mum. So that was hard because she was my support too and I probably didn't grieve for her because my son was going through so much. So I probably still have, it's been nearly seven years and I probably still haven't grieved enough for her because everything gets pushed back because, you know, when you've got a loved one with addiction, they take centre stage. And you don't want that. You don't want that to happen because I don't. And and it's you know my oldest son, when we got back from our holiday, even said, you know, Mum, I've had enough. And you know he doesn't once ever complain ever with all any of this that's been going on for years. He's never complained. But I think he'd had enough. And when he rang me and said. Um, when we're overseas, he said, Mum, do you mind? Like, I, you know, can I get an intervention order? And I said, you do what you need to do. You are it's 27, so you're an adult. You know, this is your house as much as it's ours and your home. And the guilt that you have constantly because I'm having a holiday, but it wasn't really a holiday, but I was doing it for my dad. You know, my husband, I've been with my second husband since the boys were three and six. He has brought them up because their dad has been absent. He's, he's been in and out of their life, and I think that's been a big problem with my younger son. He has um, not really been there, and I think he craves that, although they're very close with my uh, my husband is an amazing stepdad, um, and they see him as a dad, not a stepdad. Their relationship they have with him is beautiful. You know, I'm very blessed. And he's just been my rock. Um, Because I've said to him many times, if you want to go, go. Because you didn't sign up for this. And as he said, you didn't sign up for this either. And I said, yeah, but I'm his mum and, you know, this is my job. And he said, no, because he's not pushing me out of this house. So I've been very blessed to have such great support. And for me, look, going through shark 
we found shark that has been a saviour for us because, yeah, you know, I've done counselling myself. I haven't done a lot of it because I think I get so much more out of um, our in, the in-focus group that we've done. I've done that twice now. I've just finished the second program of it, which is very different this time because it's been on Zoom, so it's not face-to-face. So it's been a different way of doing it, but also um, our support group. So we sort of really have got ourselves involved in the support group. So we do one at Watsonia and we do one at Greensboro. So that's been really, really good for us. I probably, I am actually on the waiting list to see a counsellor through Sharks. I'm just waiting because in one of our meetings, Kate actually said that she feels that I need to see someone. So I'm just waiting because I probably do. But see, this is a thing. You know, as a parent, we push everything aside because we just want our loved one to get better. So every all my energy goes into my son. And it was only last week that I, and I think I spoke to you about this the other day, that I had an epiphany that I was not going to be the rescuer. And... Not that I'd give up because I'll never give up on my son because I love him too much, but at the same time, he has to save himself because I can't do it alone. And so I've left the onus on him to, to get help. You know, my son and I get on, you know, we talk a lot normally, but I find, you know, the last, you know, probably six months we're not talking as as often and it, it can go for weeks and weeks. I don't hear from him because sometimes he's got a phone, sometimes he doesn't, he'll lose it. He, he, he you know, has a tendency of losing, you know, his wallet because he will tell me when he does the ice, he'll do it hard. So I'm presuming that he has no idea where, where he is or what he's doing and, you know, but I can honestly say that for him his saviour really is been front yard. They've been actually really supportive of my son because he has sort of been yeah in and out of there. He's been known to front yard since he was probably eighteen when he was first homeless. So in and out of of there. But I think with with the COVID, they pretty much don't want anyone out on the streets. So they're trying to find housing for them. So. That's probably been one really good thing, knowing that he's got a roof over his head. Yeah. So there's obviously a lot going on for you and kind of the, the situation deteriorated at, at the beginning of the year. And then obviously we all had a different timeline for when we realised what was happening. But, you know, early March, it becomes clear that everything's going to change in, in Australia as well. So... How was that for you and how did that start to change the situation with your son and then the services that you were both using? So I think for me and and for my husband, we actually really pushed on getting more support for us because it's the unknown and we needed the tools, you know, even though we've been going to meetings with through Shark. For two years, you can never learn enough. And, you know, like when we first started with Shark, my son was in rehab and doing really, really well. And we were sort of thinking, well, you know, 
we we probably only come here, you know, for I don't know for the term that that my son's in rehab, and then everything will be fine. But we kept going, and thank God because it's been our saviour. Things have just changed so much, and you sort of think that my son would have been would have taken off and you know done really really well, but he's actually gone the opposite. And I think he wants help, and he gets the help. But then he self-sabotages. When things go really well, bang, something happens and it just, he'll go and use again and then he'll use harder. And this has sort of been the pattern this last, well, probably since COVID sort of started. He's just, nothing's open. He's, he can't see anyone. Like normally he'd come to my work and see me at my job, which is fine. I don't mind him coming, but I'm not there. All the shops are shut. So he's really finding himself very lonely. So the housing that they're, they're, they're getting or finding, and I'm not sort of quite sure whether it's through Front Yard that my son's finding the housing, but it's very sporadic. It might only be a couple of nights one place, a couple of nights in another place. It's nothing sort of long-term. But in saying that he was offered long-term at Front Yard when he came out of rehab the second time, so they offered him 12 months because he was under 25. They offered him 12 months at front yard. But there was sort of, I think for him it was easy because you know, don't have to pay any board or anything and he got food. And for me, for, for my well-being and uh, to make me f- sleep at night, even though he's not at home, he's got a roof over his head and he's got food in his belly. So I thought... And I said to him, you've got 12 months now to work on yourself and you can come home. That's what the deal sort of was. But there's so many triggers in the city. So even though it, Front Yard have been great, there's a lot of drug dealers and, you know, probably not so nice people around there. And they've, they're coming out in their droves, I think, at the moment because the city's shut down. So I think really the main people that are out there are, you know, not the ones that you really want to be around, but that's just the way it is. So he, um, I think he realised he needed to get help, so he went to St Vincent's Hospital. Well, he's actually found before that he, I got a phone call and he was in some psychiatric ward at Dandenong. How recently is this? Easter. Yeah, I get a phone call on Easter Sunday to say that he was in a psychiatric ward because he has tried to commit suicide a couple of times. But then because he's already under psychiatrist, he's already got um, support. So they really say, see you later, which is good because he has got the support. This is the thing. He's always had support, always along the way, it's, whether it's a psychiatrist, a psychologist. we even done hypnotherapy. You know, I've done anything and everything. If I thought it was going to help, well, we put money into it. So it has cost a bit of money over the time, but, you know, I think you're trying to save them. I don't know if it's, you know, you live and learn. You, you, as I'm still learning as I'm going on and, you know, because you want them to get better so you'll do anything for, for it. I mean, we don't, we've never paid drug dealers or enabled things like that. I've never paid any fines or anything like that. But if I can help him mentally, well, then I will do that. So he came out of there and then I think... He'd sort of done his dash with front yard and there was no more housing. Like he didn't have that permanent housing then. 
because once COVID sort of came in, they had a curfew. I don't know what the curfew was, but they they could not be outside for any length of time. And if you want to go and do drugs, well, you know, you could be missing for days. So that's, I think, what happened. And he went missing and didn't come back. And, and they're not going to put up with that because they've got plenty of people that want that spot. So they pretty much said, see you later. But they're still supporting him, just not giving him that housing that was, you know, going to be the 12 months that that would have been great so next thing you know I get a phone call from a nurse at St Vincent's Hospital so they told me on the second day so on the third day I've rang to see how my son is I hadn't gone in to see him I just I just rang to see how he was going because I thought I'd go in and they said he discharged himself and I said oh okay I thought you know they were going to try and help him because the nurse, when the nurse rang me, she said, oh, we're um, trying to find rehab for your son. And she pretty much said that the public service, yes, there is, there's plenty, but she said they try and keep it for people who who are alcoholics because they you can't just detox alcoholics. With, with emergency services for that, they sort of, keep that more for, you know, people who with alcohol issues. So she goes, leave it with me and I'll get back to you. Well, I never, no one got back to me. So then I rang the next day and that's when they said he discharged himself. And I said, oh, okay. And obviously I couldn't get hold of my son because he hasn't got a phone and I'd left him a couple of messages on Messenger because I thought, well, at least if he gets hold of a he often goes to a library and gets on their computer system and, you know, he'll go through his his um, Facebook. And so on Messenger, you know, that's how we often keep communication going. Right. But presumably he can't do that at the moment. Obviously, no, obviously no. So but I'd left him a couple of messages on there telling him that I love him and, um, you know, give me a call to let me know that you're okay. And then I get a phone call uh, on the Tuesday. So that would have been the Monday I rang. So the Tuesday, a couple of weeks ago, I get another phone call, missed call. And I rang back and it was uh, a nurse from uh, DePaul House, which is associated with St Vincent's. And she told me that he'd been there since the Monday. And I said, oh, because I rang the hospital, they told me the discharge. I said, no, he's here, you know, he's he's okay, um, he's doing detox and they just wanted to know a bit of a background of him because he obviously had been awake for six days or whatever and so they'd given him something to help him sleep because he, he needed to rest his brain obviously. So they weren't getting anything out of him. But he obviously was enough, alert enough to give, him my num- give them my number. So I just sort of had told him, you know, he has a, an issue with ice, um, homelessness, which I think they gathered that. So, yeah, he, he went in there and done 10 days, came out Tuesday, Tuesday a week ago. And the first thing he said to me is, um, you know, he wanted to catch up with me. He called me from the hospital on the Monday and said, I'm coming out tomorrow. 
you know, would you like to catch up? I said, yeah, I'd love to. I said, do you want to catch up and we'll get something to eat for dinner? And he said, yeah, that'll be great. So I knew where he was staying. He was staying in a hotel. But the first thing he said to me, he goes, I'm going to get $1,300 tomorrow. So this is from the enhanced job seeker payments? Yes. And and I said, well, why don't you give me a 1000 of it, put it in my account, which he's done before, that way, because I think, you know, that once they know they've got a bit of money, they, they want to spend it. And it's not on clothing or anything. When I remember, so going back to when things had first shut down in March, he was getting that seven hundred and fifty extra, and he's and that was that was the beginning of the end, really, for this last, you know, spiral that he's sort of got himself into. So he he knew that he was getting seven hundred and fifty, but he was actually going quite well. He wanted to go back into Malvern which I had agreed to pay for because you've got to pay, even though you've got it's um, you've got your private insurance, you actually have to pay another fee on top of it. It's about 450 So he wanted to go in and do like a, um, it was sort of for his recovery, but it was so he didn't relapse. So it was sort of like a preventative thing that they do. So it's a separate thing to going into rehab, but it's still part of the program and, I think he was going to be in there for, I think it might have only been a couple of weeks. Well, he he walked in there and then didn't cope and left. He So he was there for six hours. <laughs> so it didn't last very long. And then I saw him on the Tuesday and I think, so the 31st of March I saw him. That was the last time I saw him, 31st of March. And then by, I think, Thursday he'd, been given that 750 and then that's when it all just spiraled out of control because he's got that money and he knows that that's what he's, he's going to go in and do drugs and have a good good time so I think I'm not quite sure but I think they're getting extra payments even because he he was getting $1,300 on last Tuesday yeah yeah that's still happening and so I mean it's stopping him from stealing and doing other things but it's not actually helping, you know, his addiction because it's it's just made it worse because it's plentiful. And he would much rather take drugs than eat food. So he, he'd rather go and steal to get food, and he's told me that. I'll, I'll go somewhere and steal food, but so he's got more money for his drugs. Yeah. I'm getting a sort of general sense, and do correct me if, if I'm missing something, that he has still been able to access services. And and if anything, in the case of something like housing, there's been more available to him as a result of COVID-19, but that there are these external factors that are actually causing a huge problem. Isolation, difficulty communicating, the way the, the city centre is looking at the moment, the places the housing is situated, and I would imagine some stress. Oh, look, absolutely. And, I, you know, I was actually surprised because I know some places aren't taking on any more clients because they're, they're completely sort of locked down because of the COVID. He was actually able to go into detox, but the follow-on to get into rehab, there was a bigger waiting list. Yeah, he hasn't had, as I said, 
getting housing has been really good, but getting into rehab, I think, has been a, been a bit tricky to get into, you know, regardless of whether it's private or, or public, you know. Support, is, I suppose, has been really tricky because, you know, for you and I, I can talk to you because I've got a phone. But when you're homeless, you don't have internet or, you know, we can do Zoom meetings, you know, that's what we've been doing within Focus Group and all our group sessions that we've been doing with Shark, all our support groups, that's all been Zoom. But I, I've got the comfort of my home and a computer. Yeah. If you're homeless, you don't have any of that. So that's where it's hard to get that one-on-one help because they're, you know, he was going to NA meetings, which was he was actually doing those quite regularly. But then all of a sudden that shut down. So your support's taken away from you. You haven't got that person saying, you can do this, you'll be okay, because I can say that you know, that I've got you back and you'll be, you know, just keep going. But it's different coming from someone else who's been through what they've been through. So that, I think, in itself has been really hard. So, yeah, it's been definitely been a learning experience. Yeah, I think it's a lot harder for the homeless and, and people who, you know, who have an addiction. I think it's probably possibly a bit harder to, to get resources and um you know, just that, just that help. And, and, you know, he said to me the other day, he said, I'm just so lonely. I think he realises he's got no friends. People he's hanging out with aren't his friends. They're good for now. Do you know what I mean? So, and, and we're a pretty tight family. So he misses, he'd miss that family support from us, especially for me. But I said to my son, you know, you've caused this. Because he said to me one day, he goes, how did I get like this, mum? And I said, because you didn't like the word no. And and that's basically at the end of the day when he was younger, you know, because as I said, it's been a build up and I was going, trying everything and anything when he was younger to stop this from happening. And that's what I said. That's what I was trying to do. But you realise it is an illness and it it's not how you've parented. You know, we're a very stable family. It's got nothing to do with that. It's just inbuilt in them and... You know, obviously there's circumstances, 100%. There's a lot of circumstances why they are the way they are. You know, with, with my son, he has abandonment issues. So there's been a lot coming out of through psychiatrists and, and things like that. But you can say, oh, yeah, there's this and there's this and there's this. But until they sort of come to grasp it and understand it, because while they are, you know, in the mindset with the drugs, that's all they care about. They want to get better, but they just sort of don't know how to get better. And that can take many, many attempts. You know, my son could still take, you know, another 10, 15 goes of rehab before something clicks and it's, you know, he may not, but you've got to live in hope because that's all we've got. And he's young. He's got a world ahead of him. And as long as I keep encouraging him that and that he's worth and he's loved then hopefully we can get through it. And that's what I hope for. Yeah, absolutely. And we are finding that the people in his situation are, are finding it particularly difficult as obviously that just the extra pressure that's added and then things like access to technology. And But, um, you know, all the same, 
you you still need support and i'm i'm just wondering you, you mentioned that the support groups have have moved to zoom um how do you find that in, in comparison to before um well they're structured very differently um but they're still good uh, to be honest they, i think because of technology and some people aren't savvy on computers so i i'm finding it good but i can honestly say the meetings have cut in half because i think there's people out there that don't have that tech savvy side of them so they may not know how to even download zoom like my dad had a zoom meeting with his mates and had to come to us to find out i mean he's a lot older but so yeah i think for a lot of people especially even in our circle of you know our support groups they're half sometimes at the beginning there was only like three of us in the group um some people i haven't even seen you know so i think yeah i think it has been particularly hard and you wonder how they're coping with it because in the group i think for me i can be pretty much who i am because we're all going we even though we're at different stages we all know what's going on you know we feel each other's pain but when you're with strangers and that they'd have no idea what you're going through and like I wouldn't have no idea what people other people are going through so yeah it's you can be you can strip down the the layers when you're in your meetings because we're all feeling the same hurt and you know we just want to help our loved ones that's what we're there for we're there to support each other but we're there because we want the tools to help our loved ones and that's what shark has helped us with you know saved my marriage pretty much and I think it saved my son in a lot of ways because you you learn about enabling and um, you know boundaries and you know yeah and I've often said to people that you know you talk to in general and and you hear about you know everyone has someone that 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 is affected by um, addiction regardless of what it is and, you know, and I often say, oh, you know, have you ever had support? Because it's been great for me. But then a lot of people shun away. They they fear that they might see someone they know. <laughs> I think that was our biggest fear. You know, what if we know someone? Well, guess what? They're thinking the same thing as we are. So you soon realise that it's not, you know, you're, you're the one with the issue. No one else has that. So, yeah, it's it's been good. But I do, yeah, I do worry about the ones that don't have like I said, the access to, you know, computers and things like that, that, yeah, Ed, I think it is a bit hard for some people. Yeah, absolutely. But it, it sounds like it's continued to serve its purpose for you, even though it's happening remotely and there's fewer of you. Oh, look, absolutely. It, you know, in some ways it's sort of been easier because the groups are smaller. Do you know what I mean? Because you're getting a little bit more one-on-one, you know, and there's and there's new people that we're meeting too. There's a couple of newies that I've not met before. So that's been nice to listen to their stories and yeah, sort of go outside that circle that you're normally in. So yeah, for me it's been very positive. All our links have been running smoothly, just just like it would normally be. We sort of probably go more around talking around what what's going on in our with our loved ones. So not so much um listening i think they 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 want more input from us do you know what i mean because you know everyone's going through the isolation and they're all struggling yeah so yeah no i've I've found it really good right 
So I just, I think we're all kind of doing a lot of reflecting at the moment and, and thinking about the future and interpret this however you want. But I just wonder if there's anything that you've learned or that you'd like to share from your recent experience with other people who might be in the same situation or experiencing some of the same feelings? Well, for me, I feel, yeah, I think it's actually put a bit of distance between uh, my son and I because you, you don't have that connection like you used to because I think, you know, now that they're, well, especially for him, he's obviously taking more drugs than he would normally because, you know, he has the extra bit of money that he would norm, you know, wouldn't normally have. So that brings a lot of distance between us. So I think that's been hard. And because you're not as busy as you'd normally be, it's been that sort of affected uh, my mindset, you know, because you're obviously constantly thinking about how they're going, you know. Yeah, I think distance has been a big thing. I, I think, um, yeah, the isolation really sort of takes hold and, and they just sort of get caught up in their own world more so because nothing's opened and, you know, no one's, no one's around disturbing them. So wherever they are doing their drugs, they're not being disturbed. So they're probably just doing it more often and, yeah, being, being more on their own. So I think it's been a very lonely time for, for a lot of people, you know, whether you're, you're a loved one or whether you're the person that has the addiction. It's lonely anyway, but more so now. So, yeah, it's been definitely been, a, been hard, a lot of triggers. I think people are just scared. You know, I, I remember going up the street doing my shopping and, you know, you had to line up. That was so overwhelming. And it's just a shopping, just going up to Safeway, you know, Woolies. And it's so overwhelming, you know. And that's, for for me, just a normal person just going up the street to do my groceries. So can you imagine how more magnified that is for a person who is under the influence of, of drugs and alcohol? Like it'd be 10 times worse, you would think, because I know how overwhelmed I was and how you know, the world's changed and no one no one knew, you know, back in March what could happen. You know, we can only sort of look forward now and, and hope that um, things will get back to normal and there's a bit more support out there for, for the vulnerable because um, they probably need it more than ever. Yeah, and we have to really get this conversation fired up about what's been going on and what's changed over the last few months. And thanks so much for contributing your story to that i really appreciate that beautiful thank you thanks for your time take care you too there's 24 7 help available for individuals affected by alcohol and other drugs at direct line on 1800 888 236 and for their loved ones at family drug help on 1300 660 HRVIC provide great resources for harm reduction at hrvic.org.au. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe or leave us a review. And do get in touch either by emailing apsu at shark.org.au, that's shark with a C, 
or at facebook.com slash apsuonline. We're always looking for new guests as well as issues and perspectives that we haven't covered. The Association of Participating Service Users, or APSU, is a service of the Self-Help Addiction Resource Centre, or SHARC. APSU is a Victorian consumer body that believes the voices of people with lived experience of alcohol and other drugs should be heard and incorporated into service design and delivery. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of APSU or SHARC. The music you heard is by DBH. There's plenty more of it at dbhguitar.bandcamp.com. And there'll be more from us at least once a month.